Hey, good morning. Um, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Parker Melvin, and I'm one of the deacons here at, at the Cotswold location, along with Sink Kimmel um, and Forrest Stewart, who is on sabbatical. And I'm going to read our um, I'm going to read our passage today. It's a bit of a doozy, so hang with me. You'll notice that about four fifths the way down, it jumps a bunch. So if you're in your app or your Bible and not the bulletin, be ready to do a jump towards the end. This is Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And they've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. And they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored to the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, 
lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Uh, Yes, so we are in um, Exodus 32 this morning. If you were here last week, you'll notice that we have jumped way ahead. Um, Last week, we were at the halfway point of the book. We were in chapter 20, looking at the giving of the Ten Commandments. And this morning, we have skipped 11 chapters of the book. And so a lot has taken place in the book of Exodus between this week and where we were last week. And so just for a brief minute, let's catch up on what we missed. So as we saw last week, as God gave his Ten Commandments, the glory of God was on full display. There was thunder and lightning, there were trumpet blasts, there was smoke. It was completely terrifying for Israel. It was sensory overload for them. They were terrified and they told Moses, hey, look, we'll talk to you, but I'm not so sure we can talk to him. We're scared of that guy. So why don't you go and talk to God and we're going to stay here and you bring us back his message. And so Moses ascends up Mount Sinai into the cloud to meet with God. And it's there that God gives Moses further instruction on how his people are to live in their newfound freedom as God's holy nation set apart and different from every other people group in the world. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, Israel had been in Egypt for 430 years, which is longer than the descendants of the pilgrims have been in the U.S., And so, understandably, they really had no culture of their own. They ate what the Egyptians ate. They probably treated each other as the Egyptians treated them. And we saw this earlier in the book where two men were fighting and Moses tried to intervene. And they probably worshipped how Israel or how Egypt worshipped. And we get a little hint about that in our passage this morning. And so God meets with Moses on the mountain to tell him how he's going to form the culture of his nation. And so in chapters 21 through 24, we see how they are to treat each other, how they're to treat outsiders, how, they're, how they are to organize their week around worship, which leads then to chapter 25 through 31, which tells them where and how they're going to worship. And God gives Moses almost mind-numbing details about how to build this tabernacle, this worship space where God was going to come and dwell amongst his people and where his people can worship him. And it's clear that Moses must have taken copious notes because it's very detailed in the 40 days and 40 nights that he was there. And then we come to our passage, if you were paying attention to it at all, it is super weird. It is very, very strange. The golden calf And I have to tell you, growing up in the church, this passage has always been a head-scratcher for me. I mean, think about this. Really think about what's going on. Scholars believe that at this point in the Exodus, Israel had been free from Egypt for about 90 days. And in those three months, think about all that has taken place. First, all the signs and the wonders that led to their deliverance out of Egypt, culminating in the Passover where some divine figure called the Destroyer goes throughout the country of Egypt and kills all the firstborn except for the firstborn of Israel. The parting of the Red Sea, which would lead to their escape from the Egyptian army. God providing manna every morning, providing quail, water from a rock, being led by a pillar of smoke during the day and a pillar of fire at night. So think about this. Yes, Moses has been gone at this point for 40 days. They lost their main connection to God. They did not know what happened to him. Maybe he was dead, right? At times, they were really terrible to him. Maybe he just got fed up and left. They had no idea if he was going to come back. 
But here's the irony. So Aaron built this golden calf. Let's say it took one day to build the golden calf. They ate manna for breakfast just that morning. And if it took a week to form this golden calf, they would have had manna every day for breakfast each and every morning. And not only that, but they would have been in view of the pillars of fire and the pillars of smoke the entire time. So they can see that God is still moving and acting. But all of a sudden, in a span of 40 days, it appears that they've renounced their faith and start worshiping a cow, while God is clearly still in view and still giving them breakfast every morning. He is from a distance, but he is within eyesight. So they went from worshiping a living and active God to worshiping an object in no time, a golden cow. That just makes no sense to me at all. Well, this week in preparing for this morning, I've come to learn that it actually seems that something else is going on. And we're going to consider this this morning. And in doing so, we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to look at Israel's problem. And this is the outline in your bulletin. Second, we're going to see our problem, which is the same problem that Israel has. And then third, we're going to see that God has a solution. So let's first consider Israel's problem. All right, so starting out in verse 1, Israel is worried. Again, Moses is gone. Maybe he's dead. Maybe he's bailed on him. They just don't know. They've lost their leader, but more importantly than losing their leader, they have lost their primary connection to God. But what our passage shows us is that they actually haven't forgotten about God. They have not moved on from him. And there's some things in our passage that show us that they still want to have a relationship with him. They still want to relate to him, but the problem is they aren't quite sure how. And so they take matters into their own hands to do so. So what I think has confused me for so many years about this passage, and maybe it's confusing to you as well, is I have always thought that they're just creating a new God. That they've just kind of bailed on God and they're coming up with a new deity to worship. Or our passage may even lead us to believe that they've created a bunch of gods to worship. But there are several clues in our passage that shows us that this does not just seem to be the case. And so for time's sake this morning, I just want to point out two. Because I believe that they show us that at the end of the day, Israel is still attempting to relate to God and worship their one true God. So I want us to look at verse 4 because there's a phrase here that pops up, and I think it shows us what this golden calf represents. So verse 4, And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Notice what, is, what did they say there. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the, the phrase is again repeated in verse 8. So think about it. Ninety days earlier, three months earlier, they would have clearly known that a cow did not lead them out of Egypt. They would have known this. And if you were here last week, that phrase should sound a little bit familiar to you. Because right before God gives his Ten Commandments, this is what he says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Israel clearly would have known this. This would have been on the forefront on, that, on, on their mind. This phrase had been attributed to God, and Israel would not have forgotten this in the 40 days that Moses is gone. But now they're using the same phrase to attribute that to a calf, to reference a cow. 
it seems like they're saying the exact same thing, or at least something very close. Another piece of evidence we have is in verses 5 and 6, and let's read what it says. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation saying, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. All right, so Aaron has built this altar and he said that the next day there would be a feast to the Lord. Now here's what's, it did not get copied well in your bulletin, nor really in the passage up there. But if you have your Bible or you have your, an app on your phone, you'll see that the word Lord is all capitalized. And anytime the word Lord is in all caps, it's the translation of Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. And not only that, are they talking about Yahweh here, but they are doing, offering burnt offerings and they brought peace offerings. Well, where do they get the idea to do that? because they didn't just come up with that on their own. Look at Exodus chapter 24, and this is the validation of the covenant relationship between God and Israel. This is starting in verse 5. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. So here's what's taking place, Exodus 24 and 32. They are making burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord in both instances. And so in chapter 24, this altar is built, and it's built before Mount Sinai where the presence of God is dwelling. And in chapter 32, the altar is built before the calf. And the same offerings are being made to the same Yahweh. So this is super confusing. And it's a lot to take in. But this shows us that this calf is not some God Aaron created, but it is a representation of their one true God, the Lord, all caps, Yahweh. All right, so Moses is gone, and God seems super distant, and and they don't like it. They are scared. They're unsure. And so they decide to take matters into their own hands. And really, if you think about it, this really makes sense. Earlier in the week, I got a text from one of our elders, J.D. Brooks, and he sent me a song called I Drink Wine by Adele. And he said that this song is really a picture of someone trying to live their life without the gospel. So I listened to it. I'd never heard it before. And when I listened to it, it really occurred to me that she really was capturing what Israel was thinking. There was one line in particular that stuck out to me. It's the quote on the front of your bulletin. In these crazy times, I find to hope excuse me, I hope to find something I can cling on to because I need some substance in my life, something real, something that feels true. So I think this is what's happening with Israel because they are certainly in crazy times and they just want something they can cling to, something real, but they have not forgotten about the Lord. They have not created a new God. They have not forgotten who brought them out of Egypt. After all, how could they? After all that they've experienced, all the miracles that they've seen just a few weeks ago, they are not consciously rejecting the Lord, which is what I had thought they'd been doing this whole time. Instead, they lost Moses, their connection to God, and they still wanted to worship him. They still wanted to recover the relationship, and they did it the best way they knew how. And how was that? The way they had seen seen worship taking place, and maybe the way they worshiped themselves for 430 years. They wanted to worship their living God, 
by creating a representation of him the same way Egypt created representations of their gods as well. Chuck DeGroote, in his book, Leaving Egypt, a book I think I may have mentioned a couple of times before, gave his thoughts on the situation. He wrote, It's no surprise that we go back to our old security strategies in the midst of God's apparent absence, whether it is in work or sport or less acceptable addictions like drugs or porn. We are searching for something that can assure us. In a sense, our golden calves assume a kind of personality that speaks to us, come to me and I'll hold you for a bit. I know you're scared. Surely we can relate to the Israel, Israelites as they grasp for control. So really, logically and practically, it makes sense. But it does create this huge issue. Because when Israel decided to worship God, when they were scrambling to do so, they were the ones that decided how they would do it. They were the ones that decided what it would look like, literally. It was according to their own standards, and not the standards that God gave himself of worshiping him that is shown in the Ten Commandments. Specifically, the first three. Number one says, you shall have no other gods before me. But here's the question to think about. Who's calling the shots here? When they decide how they are going to worship God, ironically, they are putting themselves in the place of God. Command number two, you shall not create any graven image. Well, pretty obvious that they've done that here in this passage. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord God in vain. Now, that doesn't mean just using profanity. But that is doing anything in God's name that goes against his will and character, which is what they are doing. And God is so hurt and offended by this that he threatens to destroy the entire nation of Israel and just start again with Moses. Look again at verse 10. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Well, that is quite the reaction. What about what they're doing causes God's anger to burn against them? Why is this such a big deal? Right? I mean, what's the problem with having like some image or some picture of God if it helps them or even helps us to worship God in a better way? If it helps us to better fix our hearts and minds on Him? Well, here's the problem. In having something that represents God, it actually ends up hiding Him more than it displays Him. It completely distorts the reality of who he actually is. Think about it this way in their case, all right? A golden calf. What would this golden calf represent? Well, it's made of gold. And so it is going to have great worth and value and importance. And maybe that's what they're trying to say about God, that he has great worth, which is true. But using anything created to express the worth of God doesn't actually convey his worth. Because we're told this in Revelation 4. Worthy are you, uh, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. What else would the calf represent? Well, in my studies this week and looking at kind of the Egyptian culture, for them, their bulls would have represented strength, power, and vitality. And maybe that's what Israel is saying about Yahweh, that he is strong, that he has power. But as King David points out in 1 Chronicles, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are as exalted as, above, as head above all. 
it's safe to say that some cow doesn't represent that type of power and glory, and it completely sells him short. And not only that, but think about this. What about all the other attributes of God? What about his tenderness? What about his love? What about his personalness? What about his grace, his compassion, his mercy? An image of a cow misses all of those things. The point is this, that an infinite God cannot be contained in something finite. No object can reveal the fullness of his nature and character, but only a part of who he is. And here's where the problem falls, is this is taking place in the context of worship. They are worshiping this representation of the cow. And at the end of the day, they are not worshiping the true God. They are only worshiping a representation of a God of their creation, one that they have created, which is blasphemy, which is a big deal. I love what R.C. Sproul said about this scene in Exodus 32. He said, The cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or hotness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent. But at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. This was a religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless for men. This was not Yahweh. And this is where we come in. Because we actually end up doing the very same thing. Earlier this week, I think it was on Wednesday, um, I told Mac Harris, who works with our youth, about an illustration I was thinking about sharing this morning. And I said, hey, do you think this is like heresy of me to do so? And he said, no, I don't think so at all. So if you're offended, take it up with Mac. You can talk to him about it. Um, but we can all be a little like Ricky Bobby and Cal Naughton Jr. and Talladega Knights. Uh, if you remember the scene, they're about to sit down and have dinner, and NASCAR champion Ricky Bobby is saying grace, and he is praying to baby Jesus. He says, dear eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus in your golden fleece diaper, and his wife and father-in-law interrupt, and they say, he was a man. He grew a beard. He grew up, and so Ricky says, well, I prefer the baby version, and then Cal says, well, I like to think about Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. Because he's formal, but he likes to party. And he goes, goes on to point out, because I like to party. So obviously that is a somewhat humorous scene, but part of the humor is in it is that we tend to do the same thing. We have versions of God that we like, and we have areas of him that we ignore if we don't. We think, well, God ultimately wants me to be happy, right? So I don't really need to obey anything. Or we say God demands my obedience and people that aren't spiritual, spiritually disciplined are just plain lazy. Or we think that God is a God of social justice and correct doctrine just isn't important. Or we say, well, correct doctrine is important. It's the most important thing to God, and so he doesn't really want me to be merciful to the poor. But in doing this very thing, we are creating God in our own image. He reflects, he reflects our preferences and personality, which again is blasphemy. As A.W. Tozier points out, it's also idolatry. This is what he said. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. It begins in the mind and may be present where no overt act of worship has taken place. So there's a great way to test if this is true of your own mind. Think about these questions for a second. Does the God of the Bible ever push back on you or challenge you? Does scripture, ever, does scripture ever disagree with you and where you stand on certain matters? Does it ever challenge you 
to change how you live your life? And what if it does? And if it does, what do you do? Do you listen? Do you obey? If you are one who reads the Bible, what do you do when you come to Scripture that you don't like? Do you just dismiss it and move on to something that isn't so offensive to you? Because here's the sad reality. If the God of the Bible agrees with everything you think, do, and say, then you may not be worshiping the God whose image you were created. Instead, you may be worshiping a God that you have created in your own image, a golden calf. And it may actually show you that you don't have a relationship with Yahweh at all. It's just that serious. When I've thought about this, personally for me, the people that I'm closest to are the ones who have loved me enough to speak truth into my life when they see me living in a way that doesn't honor God or isn't loving to others. They will disagree with me, push back on me, and call me out. I've shared before here that years ago, two friends sat me down to confront me about sin they were seeing in my life, and one of my friends, Brad Grove, was so angered by my actions and behavior and calling me to repent of my sin and turn from how I was living, he pounded the table repeatedly, and he used words that are not particularly appropriate for a Sunday morning sermon. He was enraged with me. But do you know why he was so angry? I may not have realized it at the time, but he was so angry with me because of how much he loved me. He wanted more for me, maybe more so than I even wanted for myself. He loved me so much that it angered him to see me living my life in a way that dishonored God. And that's the very reason God's anger burned hot against Israel. It was because of his great love for them. He wanted more for them. He wanted to be in a relationship with them as their living God, not some cheap counterfeit. And the same is true for us. When we worship God on our own terms, his terms, his anger burns against us as well. When we commit idolatry against him, which is essentially spiritual adultery, his, God's, God's jealous anger is kindled against us, just like in a marriage. He wants us for himself. He doesn't want to share us with some other lover. It's because of his great love for us. He loves us that much. Well, let me ask you this. When you pray, have you prayed in this way? When you've worshipped, have you worshipped God in this way? Sadly, I know that I have. At the end of the day, each and every one of us are guilty of Israel's sin. All of us are idolaters. All of us are blasphemers. All of us are adulterers. And left to ourselves, that is not good. But here's the good news. God has a solution. He came up with it and he put it in motion in eternity past. And it answers two great questions. One, how can we know that God actually loves us? In the midst of our circumstances, good or bad, how can we actually know and the second one is this, how on earth do we get out from under the wrath of God? What do we do about that? And we see the solution at the end of the passage. It's something I've never noticed before, but if we pay attention to it, it's amazing. Let's read again verses 30 through 34. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. 
But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. So listen to what Moses is saying here. He acknowledges their sin. He doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't say, hey, God, you're overreacting. But then he asks, he prays, please forgive their sin. And then he courageously prays, but if you won't, put it on me. Put all of their sin on me. Blot me out of your book. I will die for my people. And how does God God respond? He tells them no. Whoever sins against me, I shall blot out of my book. But then he says, but not today. You know, in all the great movies or books or literature that we love, the greatest stories are the ones where a hero dies to save the lives of his people. I quickly, it comes to mind, William Wallace and Braveheart is one example of many. It was his death that led to the freedom of Scotland. And here in Exodus, Moses has the opportunity to be the hero, to die for his people, but God doesn't let him. And why is that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Moses says to his people, hey, look, I'm going to go and see if I can make make atonement or essentially a payment for your sin. But here's the problem. Moses can't even atone for his own sin. He can't even pay off the debt of his own sin. In verse 34, when God said, when the time comes, I will punish them for their sin, the them there includes Moses. And the them there includes you and me. Because the principle of Exodus still applies. Israel needed a mediator between them and God. Moses, too, needed a mediator between him and God. And we also need a mediator between us as sinful people and God. And that mediator is Jesus Christ. He's the hero. He's the true hero who died for his people to set them free. When God said, when the day comes, I will punish them for their sin, for God's people that day came on the cross. It was on the cross when Jesus Christ hung in the darkness in our place. He was actually blotted out of God's book so that we wouldn't be. Moses prayed, please forgive them. If not, I will die for them. Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross, dying for our sin, also prayed, Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's on the cross that we find the answers about the love of God and the anger of God. It's the place where God's anger against our sin and his grace and his love for us perfectly meet. It's where justice and grace are reconciled, and it is where we too are reconciled to God. God is so angry about our, against our idolatry, our blasphemy, and our adultery that his wrath required blood, and he loves us so much that he offered his own for our atonement. He paid the debt that Israel, Moses, and that we have incurred for this idolatry that we have committed. In verse 13, Moses asked God to remember the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, God didn't forget the promise that he made to them, but to ask him to remember his promises, Moses is saying, God, would you please act on them? 
So going back in time when covenants were made in the ancient Near East, they weren't um, ratified by signing a piece of paper. Instead, the ratification was kind of acted out between the two parties. Um, Typically what would happen is the two parties would come together and they would act out the consequences of violating the covenant of if things go bad, what's this going to look like? And so in Genesis, when God ratified his covenant with Abraham, he had Abraham take all these animals and he had him cut the carcasses in half. And so he had him split the carcasses up. And so um, now what would happen is in acting out the scene, the lesser party of the two would typically walk between the severed animals, signifying that if he broke the agreement, the same thing would happen to him, that he too would be cut to pieces. Here's what, what's important to note. The greater party, let's say it was a king, the king never moved through the animals. But this, this is not what happened with Abraham. Instead, after having Abraham cut and divide the animals in half, God himself in the form of smoke and fire, just as he appeared to Israel in the desert, smoke and fire moved through the severed animals, telling Abraham, if I should break my promise to you, may I be cut to pieces. But also saying, Abraham... If you should break your promise to me, may I suffer the same fate. And this is what happened on the cross. And this is why we come to this table and take of this meal. To remember that he did that very thing. He was cut to pieces to keep his promises to us. Adele saying in these crazy times, she hopes to find something she can cling to. She needs some substance in her life, something real, something that feels true, and so do we. And that's why the sacrament of communion is such a gift to us. Because this bread and this wine are things that we can cling to, they're things we can touch, they're substance, they're real, and they remind us of what is true. And the truth is this, that our sin is so heinous that it required the death of God, but we are so loved in the Christian gospel, he was happy to die for our sins. So who can come to this table? Well, this meal is not for people who worship God perfectly. It's not for people who keep the Ten Commandments fully, and the reason for that is because those people don't exist. This table is for idolaters. This this table is for sinners. But it's for sinners who know that Jesus Christ was cut to pieces to reconcile us to God. If you look to Jesus Christ in his perfect life, his terrible death, and his glorious resurrection to save you from your own sin... Come and be reminded of his great love for you. Come and by faith be nourished on the body and blood of Jesus. Now, if that's not you, this meal isn't for you yet. Don't violate your conscience by doing something you don't believe in. If you think that Jesus Christ was a great moral example or he was a great picture of sacrifice or love, but he wasn't the God of the universe, the great mediator who came here to save you from your sin, then don't be an imposter. Keep your seat. No one will judge you. No one will even notice. Uh, We've included some prayers on the back of your bulletin, though, to read through and contemplate if this is a faith worth having. So we are told on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup And he said, this cup represents my blood poured out for you for the remission of your sin. Take and drink. So it's our practice here at Hope to come down and receive the elements together. Once you're ready, 
You can take your time coming down, and then once everyone has been served, um, we will take them together. And so practically what that looks like is um, as you come to receive the elements, come down the middle aisle just for traffic purposes, and then go towards the outside back to your seats. The inner cups are wine, and everything else is grape juice, and gluten-free bread are in the prepackaged cups in the trays. And so let me pray, and then um, Parker, if you want to come help me out, that'd be great. Heavenly Father, how guilty we are of worshiping you in ways that break your heart. Um, how often we take your name in vain, doing things in your name and doing it completely wrong, going against your will, your character, and your desires. We can't make atonement for our sins. Moses couldn't. The only person that can make atonement for our sin is someone who has never violated your, your commands and your laws someone who kept them perfectly and who was killed for doing so, shedding his blood to bring us back to you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to do this very thing. Lord, I pray that you would take these ordinary elements of bread and wine and you would set them aside for your extraordinary use to show us and tell us of your great love for us, Father. In your name I pray.